Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. But I think it's a convincing portrait of a very complex man. What you get is someone who's not always emotionally stable, but is genuinely patriotic, devoted to his family, not always in control, but a wonderfully gifted orator, politically astute, but could make mistakes, something of an idealist. And there's no doubt he was swimming against the tide. Harris is very, very good at describing elections. He's obviously fascinated by elections. If you look at his latest book, it's all about a papal election with um, shenanigans going on in the background. And in 63 BC, of course, Cicero makes the consulship. And I think in many ways, the best thing for me in all three books is the end of the first book, where he gives you a fantastically vivid picture of the, the election itself that Cicero uh, won. That's great writing, I think. To be ignorant of history is to remain always a child. The insightful words of Roman orator, lawyer and politician Marcus Tullius Cicero. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with two interesting writers. One a classicist and translator, the other a journalist and novelist. Writers of tremendous depth, opinion and pace. Elizabeth Day unpacks the nature of love, jealousy and desire, as teased out in her new psychological thriller, The Party. And John Davy explains how the writings and ideas of Cicero speak to the 21st century. But first, I looked at my husband on the night of the party and knew with startling certainty, I do not love you and there is no point pretending. It's like tripping over a pedal and breaking a leg. Sometimes the entire course of your life can change because of a single second. Because that single second doesn't exist in isolation. It's connected to an infinite chain of minutes, days, weeks, months and years that have gone before. But it's the misshapen second that unravels it. The engrossing words of British novelist Elizabeth Day from her latest book, The Party, published by HarperCollins. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Day. I am an author and a journalist, and my new novel, The Party, uh, has just been published. The Party is a story of a man who becomes dangerously obsessed with his best friend. It's been described rather delightfully as a cross between the talented Mr. Ripley and Brideshead Revisited. It's narrated by Martin, who is a quintessential, unreliable narrator. And the passage I'm reading is going to be from the night of his best friend Ben's 40th birthday party. And Martin is observing from the outside. The rich do parties better than the rest of us. It's not just the money or the every catered for whim or the superior quality of the alcohol and food. It's a certain unquantifiable atmosphere that comes from other people's excitement. We are turned on by wealth, us lesser mortals. We don't want to be, and yet we are. We are jealous, yes. Internally, we decry the excessive, absurd, narcissistic scale of a party like Ben Fitzmaurice's 40th. But other people's money has a narcotic quality. It makes you high. It makes you forget your misgivings. You feel privileged, 
somehow exceptional to have been invited, as though the tiniest fleck of gold leaf from a giant glittering statue has smudged off on you, and you can kid yourself you belong, that you are, for a single night, indubitably one of them. And it was quite a party. Important to remember that now, given all that has happened since. Important to recall how decadent the whole evening felt when we were in it, senses heightened, then dizzied by the free-flowing drink. The lychee martinis, the champagne cocktails, the old fashions made with aged tequila dating from the year of Ben's birth, and, in an ironic nod to his university days, trays of potent sickly sweet Bacardi breezes and bottles of hooch, which prompted us all to laugh at this audacious joke of his, which, in another context, seemed so common, so cheap. But because it was Ben, everyone agreed in a swooping hullabaloo of voices that it was classic, that he was a legend and an absolute hoot and jolly good fun. Drink. So much of it. A saturation of joy. The drink poured through the night, a liquid effervescence bubbling into the corners of the house, a rolling tide which swept over and dragged us under, heads thrown back, mouths gaping open with bright, luminous laughter, echoing into the promise of the night's stretching darkness. The heady swirl of it. Images snatched into focus and lost in an ever-spinning blur. Flash of sequins, red-soled shoe, shimmering diamonds, lacquered nails, Hair shot through with shining dust. A backless dress, scooped low enough to see the tip of a private fleshy crease. A bow tie, uncoiled on a scatter cushion, edges curling. Really well done on the party, Elizabeth. I have to say it's a hugely uh, compelling read. Uh, very um, uh, nervy in parts, uh, very, very gripping and very dark in other parts and uh, very uncomfortable. But I think that um, added value to the overall reading experience because you progressively become more creeped out and uncertain yeah. as you progress through the book. So that's uh, quite, quite a feat to accomplish. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. Do you think in a lot of ways we're all um, outside trying to become insiders, trying to feel needed in some way, that sense of belonging, trying to fit in, that no matter where we are placed in society, whatever class or whatever background, that we're all trying to fit in. I I totally agree with that. I mean, I definitely feel from my own personal perspective that I have had periods of my life where it feels like I'm an outsider pressing my face against the window of a group that I want to belong to. And I think that can be as simple as at school, if you're the last person to be picked for a sports team. I mean, I, I still remember the, the crushing disappointment of that and the loneliness that you felt. And I also remember, um, as a child, I was born in England and I've always spoken with a very English accent. But when I was four, my family moved to the north of Ireland and we lived outside Derry. And that, again, was an experience of dislocation because I marked myself out in the way that I spoke as a bit of an outsider. And again, there was that sense of needing to belong. And I think it's part of an innate sense of what makes us human, that drive to be part of a bigger group. Because I think it's almost primal, isn't it? It comes from uh, it being safer to hunt in packs. So I, so I very much hope that Martin, although as you point out, he is occasionally quite a creepy narrator, I hope that readers can relate to him because actually it all comes from a place of vulnerability. 
What were the big questions that you were asking yourself when you sat down to write this novel? It's clearly a very dark exploration of human life, of class structures and social systems. But within all of that, you're tackling a lot in relation to jealousy and obsession within friendships. You're looking at marriage, a uh, sense of trust. There's lots of big, big questions there. So I'm wondering, what was, uh, uh, what was the centre um, of your thoughts at that time? I think there were two main things. One is, what is love? Um, as the famous song goes, uh, because I think love can take many forms. And in the party, you see Martin's unrequited, suppressed love for his best friend. It starts off as a close friendship between two boys at school, but it develops into something darker, more approaching obsession. And Martin loves Ben, but never admits it to himself. But he also loves what Ben represents. He loves the world, the gilded world of people living in these big country houses and rubbing shoulders with important politicians and supermodels. He aspires to that, but can never truly be part of it. And there's also the love that is a very one way, again, between Lucy and Martin. So Lucy is Martin's wife. And Lucy is married to him, but he is unable to give her what she wants. And she spends a lot of the novel quite unhappy in that relationship and trying her best to please Martin and to find some way of drawing him out of himself. But again, it's fatally unrequited. And then the other thing that I wanted to explore, which we've already touched on, is that notion of what society is, um, whether there is, as I think there is, an ever-increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots. I set the book um, in the days of the David Cameron government in the UK, And I was very concerned then that we had an era of career politicians who basically existed in a bubble. They generally went straight from Eton to Oxford University and then into politics. And it concerned me that these people might not have much of a notion of how the ordinary members of the public existed. And so I wanted to look at at that as well, because I think it's one of those things that the class system still exists, but in a very unspoken way. And unless you know the secret rules, you can never truly be one of them. Why do you think it is some people feel that when they're in love with somebody or whether they're married or in some form of committed uh, relationship, that they own a person? Because one of your central characters, Lucy, very much feels that she owns her husband, she, that she can fix her husband, that she can change her husband and that she can almost predict um, or intuit his every need. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I think uh, there's there's sort of multiple answers to that. I think Lucy's motivation is that something happened to Lucy at university that she has never recovered from. And it really shook her sense of self and her sense of identity. So I think Lucy sees attaching herself to Martin and treating him as a kind of project as a way of gaining self. Um, because she's not sure of who she is. So she tries to latch on to someone who she thinks is more powerful than her. And that's a really bad dynamic in a relationship because the unscrupulous person might exploit that that willingness to cede power and um, become something of an emotional abuser, which I think is, is what Martin does. And emotional abuse is also all about ownership. And I've spoken to many women who were in relationships that seemed to be, on the surface at least, at least perfectly, you know, per- perfectly functioning. And as soon as they got married, something changed. 
because it, their husband, and it was very often their husband, uh, seemed to think that he kind of had he had the person that he wanted. He no longer needed to court her, and that sent sent the relationship into a spi- a dark spiral. So I think there are many gradations of ownership within marriage, and I think the only way to get out of that power dynamic is to be truly honest from the beginning with your partner about all your vulnerabilities and weaknesses. And then if they love you for them, then hopefully they'll love you forever. You um, tell the story from a variety of viewpoints. We have um, Martin, our key protagonist, and his wife, Lucy. And we have uh, we have um, the main object of um, um, Martin's affections, which is Ben, who is a super rich uh, guy from elite class. He's accesses to, access to the corridors of power. His wife is a particularly interesting character. Um, Serena, isn't it? Serena, yeah. Yeah, Serena. And at one stage, Lucy makes an observation that, that everything in their life became unnecessary. And it made me laugh so much because mm-hmm. how you portray the uh, the social elites in society and the, you know, their themed houses and their fancy houses that they lived in and everything is bespoke to their every need. It all seemed so unnecessary and almost disgusting. It does, yeah. I, I had tremendous fun writing Serena, actually, because she was the composite of... Um, many sort of society types that I had come into contact with. I think there's a stage that comes when you are absurdly wealthy, where you almost forget you exist within the parameters of that wealth. And for Serena and Ben, um, I think Lucy points out that even the number of children they had became unnecessary. So they have have four children in quick succession. They have the uniformed nannies uh, wearing uniforms that are designed not to look too much like a uniform. Um, and I, it's tremendous fun writing about that world because I am not ridiculously wealthy myself. And um, it's quite fun observing it again from a sort of outside perspective, which is why I loved the voice of Martin, because he, like me, was sort of looking on at something that he could never fully comprehend. And I was lucky in the sense that my day job is as a journalist. And as a journalist, you get lots of privileged access that you wouldn't normally get. And my first job in journalism was as a diarist on the Evening Standard in London. And it was literally in my job description that I had to go out every night to all these terribly glitzy parties and bowl up to celebrities and ask them various questions that would hopefully make a news story for the next day's paper. And that meant that, again, um, I was in this position of being something of an, an insecure wallflower at these parties. I was only invited as a journalist. I wasn't invited as a guest. And that put me in the position of observer. Um, And I picked up sort of lots of interesting nuggets from that particular era of my life, all of which went into describing the party of the title. Yeah, how you write uh, the party and the social manoeuvrings at the party, who's shaking hands with who, who's drinking what, who's eating what, and how everyone's eavesdropping on each other's conversations and competing and wanting to be noticed. It, it's hilarious stuff, but it's also very dark, uh, very unnerving and very, very uncomfortable because clearly there's so much um, uh, psychology at the back of this, so much deep-rooted anxiety and competitiveness that it makes it all so, uh, so, so, so dark, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because uh, this is my fourth novel. When I wrote my first novel, Scissors, Paper, Stone, I gave a copy to my mother and she read it from cover to cover and she went very quiet for a few hours and then she looked at me and said, are you very dark? <laughs> She's like, do you, have, do you have very depressing thoughts in your head? And um, I don't, actually, and I think it's partly because I explore them on the page. And the darkness 
of the party comes from Martin's slight bitterness. But I hope that there are also moments of lightness of touch and humour in there. Um, but I'm under no illusions that um, the people Martin has befriended want him for what he can give to them. They treat him almost as a mirror to admire their own success. And Martin's fatal error is to believe that that's friendship and that that's love, but actually it's a bad mistake. And that is quite a dark theme. And I write characters who act on those themes and who act sometimes in unlikable ways. But the other thing that I think is that that is life. It's a reflection of life. There is no such thing as a black or a white character. There are only shades of gray. All of us act occasionally in contradictory and complex ways. And I really steer as clear as I can from the notion of having to write, quote unquote, nice characters. Mm. I think it's something that female authors are expected to do a lot of. And I just don't enjoy that because for me, it's not realistic. Well, none of your four main characters are anyway nice, but they're deeply interesting and complex characters. And they they are a great window into the world and all the absurd um, hypocrisy within the world. I thought how you wrote uh, Martin was very interesting because um, clearly he's a very angry character. He um, is fighting a lot of a lot of battles. But within all his manoeuvrings, he um, he's not weak in any way. He 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 makes the most of what he's got and how he and and how he tries to reinvent his world, um, uh, almost an imaginary world. His backstory, though, is very interesting. His relationship with his mother. How did you go about writing that? I first of all, I just want to say I think Lucy's a, a sort of nice-ish character. Like I feel like I would get on with Lucy mm. if I met her. Um, she starts off quite brittle because of the stuff that she's experienced within her marriage, but she ends up a really strong character in the book. So I just want to put in a special plea for Lucy there. Um, in terms of Martin and his backstory, I knew that I needed, as an author, to give a reason to my readers why he wanted to be a certain way. And I am very interested in the influence our parents can have on on bringing up their children, effectively, and particularly interested about the relationship between single mothers and only children, because I think there's a particular kind of expectation that comes with that, because they are each other's family, and Martin is the only child of a single mother. His father dies before he's born, and he's taught sort of never to speak about his father or never to ask a question about how he died. And um, in that dysfunctional dynamic, their love for each other becomes warped and suffocating because they only have each other to rely on. And then what ends up happening is that Martin is desperate to escape from, from his mother. And that then sends him to a boarding school where he ends up meeting Ben Fitzmaurice. And, and he inveigles his way into Ben's family because he feels that that can stand in as a substitute. And now he's part of this a uh, lovely sprawling family with two children and a big house and parents who seem to be nice and seem to care about him and and he's very intelligent Martin but all else that you can say about him he's super bright so he is as you say very adept at making the most of his situation he says at one stage in the novel, I think my mother's obsessive love for me coexisted with contempt for her own vulnerability. And it's a really interesting line because when you think that through, it leads into all sorts of frightening scenarios, doesn't it? Because it's a clearly doomed scenario. 
It is. So I think what he's getting at there is the fact that his mother doesn't want to acknowledge how much she loves her son because she realises that he is all she has. And that's where her vulnerability comes from. So instead of showering him with love, she actively seeks almost to distance herself from him because she feels that that's the only way either of them is going to survive. And again, it goes back to, I guess, a sort of walked natural instinct, you know, sort of sending your fledgling chick out of the nest uh, to make his way in the world. Um, but it, it, I mean, I have to say, you know, I, I have terrific parents. <laughs> so, so it doesn't come from a place of autobiography at all, any of that. But I am, I think, I think all dysfunction starts in the family unit or in the lack of family unit. And that's why, as Tolstoy said, all happy families are alike, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own particular way. And I do think much of great literature starts from that point, from that kind of microcosm of the family dynamic and the relationships we grow up understanding or misunderstanding. The surprising thing on how you've written Martin's character is that um, as you progress through the novel, you know, he does all sorts of creepy stuff, um, really uh, psychoantics, clearly very jealous, obsessed and driven within his obsession. But he is not unlikable either. And possibly it would be too strong to say that you have sympathy for him. But as you get through, as you progress through the novel and you see that all what he's grappling with in terms of social conventions and how he's being judged, you can understand how screwed up he is. I'm so glad you said that because I think that too. And I think that Martin stands in as a kind of underdog because you sort of end up rooting for him because the people that he's trying to befriend treat him so callously. And and I like that idea as an author of playing with a reader's sympathy and also um, the uncertainty of whether what Martin's telling you is actually true. Um, I love unreliable narrators. And Martin starts off as a single narrative voice. And it's only when you get the um, point of view of Lucy later in the book who describes some of the same events, but in a slightly different way, and, you, and it's then that you realise that Martin actually hasn't been wholly truthful. And I think as a reader, I like reading that kind of book because you're constantly trying to put pieces of the puzzle together in your own mind. And I think um, that helps you become sort of enticed into the plot and pulls you forward. And that's why there's a narrative pull, I hope, in the party that, that makes it read like a psychological thriller. Lucy Martin's wife uh, throughout the novel goes to a therapist, I think his name is Keith, and Keith um, gives her lots of feedback on where she's going well in her marriage and her relationship and how she understands the world around her. And it makes for very, very interesting reading because as a reader, it brings up lots of questions that the reader will put to themselves in their own lives. And I thought that was a very interesting narrative within the narrative. But at one stage, Keith says that Keith, the therapist, says to Lucy, the mind has a way of organising itself. Sometimes the most important things will remain buried for a long time and we remember them only on a cellular level. And he talks a lot about muscle memory. Have you done much therapy or was it important for you to poke at, I suppose, the therapist's couch and the, the scenarios that present that? Because I can imagine as a writer, if you're one of your characters or uh, one of your protagonists is on the, um, on the couch, so to speak, um, there, you know, there's so many different things you can throw in. Yes, something that I've noticed in, I think, all of my books, there is a therapist, <laughs> um, not necessarily a fully drawn character, but at some point I'll put someone into therapy. And I have been in therapy myself. I found it incredibly helpful for some very dark moments in my own life. 
And I think I find it useful as an author because it's a way of psychoanalyzing your characters on the page. And it's a way of, as you say, prodding them to greater understanding of their own motivation. So I, I was very clear that I wanted the character of Keith to draw out stuff that Lucy might not necessarily say to us if she were left to her own vices. And muscle memory is something that I'm also fascinated by because of my own personal experience. So I can think of several occasions where it's happened to me where um, I, a former boyfriend of mine was uh, killed in Iraq. Tragically, he went there as a journalist and it was an incredibly shocking and devastating event for everyone who knew him. And it happened in July one year, I think it was 2004. And I just remember obviously grieving at the time. And then a year on from that, I started feeling really low around July. And to begin with, I couldn't quite work out why and what was wrong with me. And then I suddenly remembered it was it was year to the day. And I do think that your body has a way of suppressing things that are so difficult to grapple with until you are strong enough to be able to cope with them. Um, and that is really what happens to Lucy as well. There's a lot of stuff she hasn't dealt with. She had a miscarriage, as did I. Um, similarly, uh, when I had a miscarriage at three months, I went into a period of numbness and actually, I think, shock. And my best friend described it as me being behind a kind of perspex screen that she would try and knock on to get some reaction. And and I think, to be honest, I was just processing things. And it was only a few months later that I could acknowledge what had happened and then start to deal with the feelings that came from that. I presume all those experiences have really impacted on how you approach writing a novel and whether the intensity you're willing to bring into that novel. Yes. I guess everything that I go through in life affects how I write. And I don't mean that I write autobiographically, but I just mean that sometimes you can have a kernel of experience that can really flourish in an entirely different way on the page. And I like having those starting points. And and it is, yeah, I think, I mean, hopefully I'm getting a better writer the more of life I experience. Um, and it does definitely affect the kind of themes that I want to um, that I want to explore. Um, and then a lot of it is just complete invention as well. None of the marriages, Elizabeth, in this novel are um, um, are functioning on whatever will be perceived at a normal level, whether we can say any marriage functions at a normal level. But, mm. you know, what all four of your main characters bring into their marriage, what they're willing to do, what they're willing to sacrifice and the, you know, and their approaches within it make for a very interesting reading. And it got me thinking that is it very easy to fall out of love in marriage? It's a great question. I think it's easy to fall out of love in any relationship because I think what happens is when you're in a relationship, particularly actually when you get married, there's almost a sense that having got married, you've done the hard work. You've kind of established yourself as a couple in the eyes of the world. You've made these vows and that's sort of it. And the biggest danger, I think, and I speak as a divorcee, I've never called myself a divorcee. It makes me sound about 85. But anyway, um, I think one of the biggest dangers in any relationship, but particularly marriage, is to stop tending and nurturing your relationship and to stop making time for each other and to stop communicating with each other because you think it's a sure thing. So essentially, it's about not taking 